fragile global economic recovery amid the COVID-19 pandemic has led to the expectation of rising demand for oil around the world. Leading exporters are grappling with how to manage prices and market dynamics going forward. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me is Kelsey Warner, co-host and The National's future editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hey, Mustafa. And with us also for this episode is Jennifer Niana, The National's energy correspondent. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Mustafa. So it's been a pretty uh, busy few days uh, going back to the tail end of last week, where the OPEC Plus Alliance, that's the leading oil exporters, including Russia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, have been trying to work out how to move forward in terms of supplying extra oil to the market uh, in August because there's rising demand and prices are quite relatively high. um, And they want to meet that demand without letting the market get too tight. But also they're looking ahead. There's a bit of concern that this global economic recovery may be very fragile, may disappear given that COVID-19 is so unpredictable and fluid. But also the prospect of Iranian or Venezuelan oil coming back onto the market because of the lifting of sanctions potentially also makes them think they don't want to open the taps too much. However, the meeting that started last week ultimately has been postponed um, on Monday after uh, the leading group co-chaired by Saudi and Russia wanted more time to review the UAE's stance on where things are. The UAE supports uh, adding more oil to the market in August like everybody else, but their feeling is there's no need at the moment to extend the, the wider production curves that had been agreed, um, which are set to expire in April 2022, to the end of the year, which is what the, the larger group led by Saudi and Russia want to do. Also, the UAE feel that the, the baseline, the production baseline at which their own production quota has been set as part of the wider decision on limiting oil produced and exported, they feel that baseline isn't correct, isn't fair, given their increased capacity. So they're, to bear with me here, but their their baseline is set to production in October 2018. They're saying a fairer assessment would be in April 2020, which is a much higher capacity threshold. So at the moment, different parties are far away from agreeing how to move forward. The UAE wants to decouple the decision on August output from the longer-term decision-making on what to do. Saudi and Russia want more time to consider this. So that's where we stand. Jennifer, you've been covering this blow by blow um, up till now. Um, you know, how, how, how has the, uh, the developments been? It's been pretty you know, dramatic in a way. Uh, it's been dramatic, and we've seen three meetings postponed, and uh, the next ministerial meeting, um, it, w- w- we have no idea when it's likely to happen. But on the other side, while we have OPEC uh, you know, uh, behind-the-scenes negotiations happening, we're also seeing um, a dramatic increase in oil prices. Now, on Tuesday, uh, Brent, which is the international benchmark for crude, nearly hit 78 per barrel, 
which is the first time it's reached that level since the second half of 2018. An even more dramatic increase um, uh, was in the West Texas Intermediate, which rose to about 77 per barrel, which is the highest in seven years. So this uncertainty in uh, among OPEC plus producers is actually proving to be a positive for prices because a no deal, which is a scenario that we that we are facing right now, um, actually allows for a for a tightened market. So we have the curbs set for possibly another month. We don't know when they're meeting next. So in the event that OPEC is is unlikely to bring more production to the market. Uh, oil prices are likely to continue, and some analysts are expecting prices to hit 80 per barrel. And we've also seen both Brent and WTI, which had a wider spread, uh, you know, narrow their spread. So they're they're trading pretty much neck to neck right now. So that's also another development that we've been seeing. Jennifer, the deal between oil producers, as we're seeing right now, to keep crude prices stable is uh, just a, a finely tuned dance. Do you have any insight as to what the producers' preferences are in terms of the trajectory of price? We've seen the price just sort of, you know, kind of calmly just eke up month by month to, you know, now record levels today. But where where do, do they want this sort of runaway train to go at this point? You know, they, they, they want stability in the markets um, and they do not want a repeat of the scenario we saw last year when prices, especially WTI, uh, traded below zero for a brief uh, period of time. But it also led to heavy losses for the energy industry, um, you know, unemployment in, in, in the energy sector, especially in the U.S. Um, and, you know, lack of investment uh, which will which will perhaps in the future further increase prices. So they don't want that. They want this, the, the the energy sector to be to be stable, um, to have to create further employment opportunities, and also in, in in a way prepare for a future where oil is not the dominant player. So they want a mid level. So we're not nobody wants I think a hundred dollar price level right now. Um, so as long as prices are, are sufficient to balance budgets here in the Middle East, support employment opportunities globally, uh, but also create an adequate base to uh, prepare for a future without oil, I think that's the that's the sweet spot. Um, Jennifer, the the bigger picture here, um, as as you alluded to, beyond beyond the energy industry, uh, when when you mentioned that nobody wants oil prices at a hundred dollars a barrel is that the global economic recovery is very fragile. And the, the, the idea of very expensive oil can derail that recovery, can, can put people off from buying oil, essentially, um, because it's too expensive. So it, it's a very difficult balancing act for these producers that have, have up till now done a, a remarkable job at keeping uh, prices stable. Which and, and stability is the key here because these producers want an idea of, of what their revenues are going to be from the sale of oil. And the market wants to know that it can also rely on, on where oil prices are trading, as do industries and producers of, of goods and, and that actually use oil uh, physically to create those products. Now, I, I think you know, there's this sort of 
the image of the from the oil shocks of the seventies of of long lines of cars in the U.S. because um, oil was very expensive and and there were shortages because there you know the, the producers um, had had put an embargo on oil. But I think there's no realistic chance that that's going to happen anymore. A lot has changed. So this isn't a sense of of hitting the consumer directly as it might have been. 30 or 40 years ago but there really will be a knock on effect on global economic outlook if they don't get this balance right so they they re- they you know what's ha- what happened in these meetings in vienna that were ultimately postponed everybody was watching to see what was going on and even the us um uh, this week has said that they are monitoring events and speaking to the leading producers as well uh, to find out what's going on so so ultimately if we get the oil that we expect, the increase in August, everyone will be happy, um, producers in particular. But down the line, understanding how the dynamics will work and how the, this alliance of producers will continue to negotiate on supply and demand really affects everybody. I'm going to tag a question onto the end of that for Jennifer. What is this telling us right now about OPEC's importance in the global energy landscape? I mean, given the fact that, of course, the U.S., the world's largest producer, is out of the group. There had been talks relatively recently about its relevance on the global stage, but now we're seeing just how relevant it is as we're seeing oil prices climb. What, what is it telling you about OPEC right now? I think uh, OPEC still plays a, a very relevant role in the oil markets. Um, if the world's largest producer of oil and gas, the U.S., uh, with this administration, with the Joe Biden administration, is also on the sidelines watching OPEC and asking them to make sure the prices um, are at a, at a level that is uh, helpful for consumers in the U.S. It shows that even they, um, you know, in, in a sense, respect OPEC, uh, but they also play a significant role. I mean, if if, for instance, last year when prices plunged to record levels when demand collapsed, if OPEC hadn't come together to cut back around 10 million barrels per day for around three, three or so months, uh, you know, it would have been, it, it would have led to a significant blow to the global economy, and the, the energy industry is 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 still a significant, uh, you know, backbone of of, of the global economy, and uh, with prices either too low or too high, it's not a good scenario. Mustafa mentioned consumers um, in a country like India, for instance, which is in, in which is undergoing the second wave of COVID, uh, prices at the pump are still high. Uh, they've not had the benefits and they've not been able to, to profit from prices being too low last year. So if prices hit $100, it's going to be really difficult for countries like India to come out of the second wave and make sure the economies grow at a sustainable pace. Um, and it's not even sustainable for the U.S., as we've seen um, you know, behind-the-scenes talks with the U.S. Department of Energy and OPEC and others. So I don't think it's going to be sustainable for anyone, even the most de- developed economies and uh, the developing ones. You mentioned India. It's 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 really important to consider India and China as well. These are the, the you know the biggest markets for for oil from the Middle East, um, in, including the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And and so really, you you hit the point home really really well about about you know the, the uncertainty. So if if the COVID nineteen pandemic continues to oscillate, um, and we have new variants, and 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 we see you know various travel restrictions and. Uh, you know, impacts on local economies. 
then that's going to hit demand for energy. And then on the flip side, as you mentioned, the US uh, shale producers, historically, as oil prices have persisted on the high side, it's brought back production in the US. And then that results in excess supply, which then results in a really fast and rapid decline in oil prices, which again, it all comes back to that stability. So the, these, you know, the, 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 the wider discussions going on between the producers are, are how to navigate a lot of unknowns uh, that, that it's very, very difficult to, to, to forecast and predict. And then you have the, the, the focus on the, you know, the UAE, if we talk about that a little bit, which is where the UAE is saying, look, we're, we're totally behind the, the alliance, we're totally behind the wider production curbs that were needed and, are, and, and will probably continue to be needed. But also we have to recognize the reality that um, you know, we, we did this deal a while ago. We did this deal based on things that happened in the past. Things have changed now and we need to be more flexible. We need to update things. And, and I, I think there's some concern from the co-chairs of the alliance, Saudi Arabia and Russia, that it was already very, very difficult to manage all the competing producers. I mean, so many of them in the group that to start making changes at this point is, is going to be a really tricky diplomatic situation. So the, you can you can see the the perspectives on 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 both sides, but largely, I think the doom and gloom, and I think we've seen that on Monday, and this is really the big the big thing for people to consider is that the doom and gloom that oh the deal could fail, the, the OPEC plus alliance could collapse. I mean, we're clearly seeing that that's not the case, right, Jennifer? No, the the alliance that is OPEC plus the allies led by Russia. Um, they've been through a lot since 2016 when they came together. And in 2016, they formed an alliance to counter what was then, you know, this influx of U.S. shale. The U.S. had become uh, the biggest producer of, of crude at that point. And Russia and Saudi Arabia set aside differences to form the strong bloc uh, to prove to, you know, to prove to be a counter to that and also put forward the interests of sovereign producers um, and, and, you know, they've uh, gone through many ups and downs last year in, in, in April. Um, the, they were, Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia couldn't see eye to eye on, on production um, cuts. And we saw the deal collapse and output increase to the highest level for nearly all of the countries uh, involved. And we saw how that impacted the market and they set aside differences, came together for the common good. So we've, we've seen these producers put aside their differences and come together to work. So OPEC is still likely to be relevant for as long as oil is needed. And also, I want to address the point you made about the UAE and its investment in crude capacity, uh, the urgency and I'd like to explain that is, you know, there's only a small window for oil to continue to grow and for investment to continue to pour. Um, globally, a world the world economy is looking to decarbonize and become carbon neutral by 2050. The UAE has, has plans to raise its production capacity to 5 million barrels per day by 2030. They have invested significant uh, capital in the last few years. So you can see that they'd like to monetize and, and increase production, especially of certain uh, high-grade types of crude within that short window of time. Um, and not just the UAE, producers globally are looking to make sure that low-cost um, fossil fuel, where available, um, 
can be utilized in that small span of time before the world decarbonizes and we put aside fossil fuels and we look at cleaner forms of energy. The Nationals energy columnist Robin Mills had predicted that this April deal would lead to consternation among OPEC plus because it wouldn't match up with the production capacity of its members and that the UAE is simply the first to raise its hand and raise concerns about, you know, production capacity mismatch. And so, Jennifer, I'm glad you spoke to kind of this long-term demand thought that's starting to seep into the narrative, which is this idea that as we all get on a path to net zero, switch to electric vehicles, technologies improve. Um, Can you talk a bit more about the UAE's overarching strategy against its, you know, output capacity as well as some of its downstream efforts in recent years? So far this year, we've seen an increased investment in in hydrogen and developing the hydrogen economy. For ADNOC, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, they're looking at steam methane reformation. They're looking at blue hydrogen, and we've seen large scale. Um, you know, we've seen announcements for blue ammonia projects. So th- that is one way uh, the National Oil Company in the UAE is looking to diversify its um, future energy output. And in parallel across um, the UAE, we've, we're also seeing efforts at adding more solar uh, nuclear capacity and also possibly using nuclear energy as, as a stable base load to produce hydrogen. So we have all of these efforts, um, and, and the UAE is very committed uh, to you know, mitigating climate change and is one of the leading producers, um, oil producers, when it, that is you know, pushing for these efforts to decarbonize. So at the same time, they are sitting on these massive reserves of, of oil and also gas, um, Abu Dhabi discovered massive reserves of gas, largely sour gas, that has pushed it up in terms of, of, of global rankings for reserves. And they want to make sure that they monetize that before you know, we hit a, a timeline where that is no longer a viable form of fuel. So the UAE is looking to, 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 to source its revenues from the sale of, of low-cost oil and also um, the transitional fuel, as we call it, gas, and use that to uh, develop some of the projects that it has on the the sidelines, just blue ammonia, hydrogen economy, developing a fleet of hydrogen cars. That is Dubai's strategy for now. Um, So that is part of the overall uh, hybrid transition plan they have um, going on in the UAE. So we we have these three strands. We have the short term, which is, Will we get supply uh, in August uh, from the OPEC plus producers to meet growing market demand? Then we have the medium term of how to manage the uh, potentially uncertain uh, continuation of that demand linked to the wider global economic recovery and and what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we have the longer term trend, which is new technologies, climate change, the shift away from carbon intensive energy sources. And like you said, you know, we have these transitional uh, sources like gas, but also as solar and other renewables ramp up as well. So all these things are, are kind of moving along together in, in, in different streams. And, and we're asking at the moment to kind of look into our crystal balls 
um, and say how quickly all these things are going to happen. And consumer trends are, are changing just as fast. And, and, and we don't know where the next shock is coming from. I mean, no one predict, I mean, some people did predict um, a pandemic perhaps, um, but it took us all by surprise. So what will the next surprise be? So for, for producers, uh, international energy companies, uh, renewable energy companies, it's, it's, it's a pretty challenging time really to, to be alive, if you like. Exactly. And uh, another point I'd like to uh, add um, back to the question that Kelsey raised earlier, I mean, we're also preparing for a world where the internal combustion engine, as we know, may not you know, exist. So the UAE and also Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, they're looking at ways um, to use their resources in terms of you know, plastics or different types of chemicals, which is why we're seeing a diversified base develop in Ruiz, which is the UAE's uh, downstream hydrocarbons hub. And we're seeing all sorts of specialty chemicals, fertilizers. I mean, we, we recently wrote about Reliance uh, Industries from India, so, you know, looking to be a, a, an anchor tenant in the, in the Tezis hub. So they're looking at other ways for oil to be used, which is not, uh, you know, the, the, the basic, its primary use right now, which is uh, to be used as fuel in, in vehicles. So we're seeing that sort of transition in place as well. And eventually uh, that, I mean, if, if the world finds alternatives to plastics and specialty chemicals um, for, for other forms of energy also to be part of the portfolio of um, the companies that are today known as national oil companies. We'll leave it there. Jennifer Niana, the National's Energy Correspondent, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Kelsey Warner, thank you so much. Good to be here. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Please do join us again next time.